Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. This is what we see Paul do. It's not working. He can't make it work. He can't make this promise that he has been raised with as a little boy that if you do the law of Moses if you do everything you're told you do all the ceremonies you you make the sacrifices you pay the money you're supposed to pay you will enjoy peace with God and he's going but I don't but he's not telling people He's wearing it on the inside. Over the past two weeks, we've been coming to know a very proud and committed Jew named Saul. He had some issues, anger, impatience and arrogance to start with, but they would give way after his encounter on the road to Damascus. Tonight is the third in a series on the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's join Dr Corbett for Paul, A New Passion. Today, I want, to, I want to look at someone whose identity changed. And I know that we live in a world where we're told that identity doesn't change. And I think there's really, really good evidence to show that it most certainly does change. And we'll see, especially from the, the life of Paul, that in fact, his identity clearly changed. And so as we do that, I want to do a couple of things. I want to encourage you who may be battling. You may be battling with things in your life that you think you can't ever overcome. And secondly, you may know someone who perhaps you're a Christian and you've been trying to share with them and they just seem to be getting harder and narkier. And I think there's a lot of encouragement to be drawn from what we're about to see in the Apostle Paul. I think also for those of us who have become Christians and we thought, and I've heard many people who've been baptised as we just baptised three people just two weeks ago, sometimes you get baptised and you think all of those things that you were were battling were now, they're gone. And I know for some people that happens. I know I've heard of drug addicts who come up out of the waters of baptism and, and they're completely set free from drugs. But can I just tell you, That's not the normal experience of people. And we're going to see someone who became known as one of the greatest apostles that represented the church in the first century. And he said it wasn't his experience. There were all kinds of things that Paul battled with and they took a long time to deal with. So this is part of what we're going to see. So this is looking at Paul and we've already looked at, and I'll just recap in a moment, but we're going to look at how what Christ did in his life was give him what we call a really a new passion a new passion he became someone who had a passion in a set of areas that were actually making the problems he was trying to deal with worse in his life and these things they bugged him and I'll show you in a moment that he wore a really really good mask he presented himself in a way that He kind of presented himself as Mr. Cool, Mr. Perfect. And yet on the inside, he tells us uh, in a rather autobiographical section in something that he wrote, that that was not what was going on on the inside at all. So firstly, just to recap, this guy Saul, who later his name was changed to Paul, Saul of Tarsus was a Turkish Jew. He grew up in this place called Tarsus, which is in what we call today Turkey. Back then they called it Asia. 
or Asia Minor. And so he was a Turkish Jew. Now, the reason this is important is because he was accustomed to living in a Jewish community, but surrounded by people who were not Jews. So this was kind of his background. And I think this is important to why God chose this man. But he moved to Jerusalem and he spent his time in Jerusalem, being taught by the leading professor of Jewish theology, uh, Gamaliel. We'll see that in a moment. So Paul was what we will see was an extremely proud Jew and according to his own description of himself, he was utterly committed to Judaism. There's not a thing he wouldn't do for Judaism, the law of Moses, which is the catch cry of Jews. He says this in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, I am a Jew. This is at one of his court cases. This is where he says, giving his own testimony, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So he's in Jerusalem, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which is an expression to say that that was his his teacher, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He goes on in one of the things that he wrote to the Philippian church, and Philippi was in what we would call today Greece. He says this in chapter 3 verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So you get the impression he was he's describing his life utterly committed to Judaism and he's describing himself as, you know, pretty committed. He was the real deal. He goes on in verse 5 and he says this, circumcised on the 8th day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee and these are the hardcore guys these are the really hardcore guys Uh, all rabbis had to be a Pharisee so he was in that line to become a rabbi and so in verse 6 he says this as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Which is another way of saying, I was perfect. You get the, the shy, retiring, wallflower personality of this guy. Uh, he was confident. And we would call that arrogant. And so Paul was outwardly displaying this bravado. I've met people like that. I've met people who present themselves, I've got it all together. I've got the 2.3 children and I've got the, 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 the cars and I've got the pool and I've got the boat and I've got the nice house and I've got the trophy wife. And yet, I, I remember once Kim and I were at a businessman's uh, offices and he actually motioned for us, can you come in? <laughs> and we came in. And he was this highly successful bloke. And he just shared his utter emptiness. And he shared how he would mock Christians. He told us this. Whenever I hear a Christian talk about their Christianity, I would mock them. And then on the inside, I would hope they wouldn't give up talking because I was really interested in listening. And yet to see this guy owns a Hartley, 
high profile successful businessman you would think man that guy's far from God and I remember coming out of that office going well there you go no one no one can be judged by outward appearance and certainly you can't write people off as far from God and that may be you here today and if you are here today thank you for coming I hope that what you hear today gives you some encouragement about the journey that you might be on so here this is where we can see inwardly this guy Saul as his parents called him was empty he was deeply struggling to make his religion work now here he is I'm a Jew I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly committed I'm full of zeal I am perfect and blameless and yet later on in a rather autobiographical telling he says this in Romans chapter 7 verse 15 and we can see that Romans chapter 7 is his biography of saying this is what it was like for me as a Jew and he says this in in verse 15 for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want to do but I do the very thing I hate so he knew what was right he even says I really I kind of really wanted to do that but it never worked out I just couldn't do it and in verse 18 he goes on and he says for I know that nothing good dwells in me this is different to the bravado this is not the guy who you know just two minutes ago was presenting himself as perfect blameless this is the guy who's going I am empty on the inside it's not working for me there's nothing good in here that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out and I've again I've met people like that they can't figure this out I've had you know even recently in my office highly successful people making six-figure salary packages telling me that at night they go home and that it's they can't live with themselves and they're getting drunk every night. One of them recently checked into a rehab clinic using his holidays to do it so no one would know. This is the emptiness that people are facing now in life. And Paul could relate to people like this. And in his zeal, you know, what do you do when it's not working? Well, what does a blowfly do when it's not working? You ever seen a blowfly try to get through the window? <laughs> what does it do? just lines up again maybe if I try harder <laughs> Poof. okay I didn't quite try hard enough so what does the blowfly do back it up try again this is what we see Paul do it's not working he can't make it work he can't make this promise that he has been raised with as a little boy that if you do the law of Moses if you do everything you're told you do all the ceremonies you, you make the sacrifices you pay the money you're supposed to pay you will enjoy peace with God and he's going but I don't but he's not telling people he's wearing it on the inside and so what does he do what does a blowfly do he tries harder what does it look like for him to try harder he takes people who claim that they've got it and they're not doing what he's doing to get it and he kills them 
He persecutes them. He martyrs them. And maybe if his zeal increases, just like the blowfly smacking its head up against that window again, maybe somehow that window will materially dissolve and he'll be able to get through. Maybe he'll get that breakthrough in his soul. And so Paul, it says in, in Acts, at the end of chapter 7, the start of chapter 8, he began terrorising Christians around Jerusalem. He then seeks permission from the high priest to go to the next city, Damascus, and drag Christians out of their homes and publicly execute them. This is hardcore stuff. But it shows sometimes that the more convicted someone feels, the more opposed to the truth they become. And we've seen this. We've seen this in people. And uh, there are people in this church who... You started coming here and you weren't a Christian. And I remember there's several people where they came and they came with arms folded and they came with a prickly attitude. And you may, have, you may remember some of these people and they, they heard something that was like, oh, man, that hurts, but that's what I need. And they came the next week and they heard something else. And that pain, they realised, was the surgeon's knife bringing healing to their soul and they came the next week and came the next week. And then there was a moment of transaction. A transaction where Calvin says we transact our filthiness for his rightness or righteousness. We give him our guilt and he gives us his innocence. And the transformation that takes place in someone's life at that point is breathtaking. Breathtaking. I think I referenced um, Bill Hayden. You know, in his day, the Christianity is stupid. Uh, there is no God. And he had a platform of the opposition leader. And I think he was the successor to Gough Whitlam. Uh, I think he was the next one in line, I think. And here he is. You know, you Christians are idiots. There is no God. And how anyone could believe in God, you, you, you're a drongo. I don't think that was, I'm paraphrasing. But that was, that was kind of his thing. And then he, had the, then he had the platform of governor general to do it. And then two months ago, he gave his life to Christ and was baptised in the church. And he said, it was in Ipswich. He said, all the while I was saying that, I was in inner turmoil on the inside because I knew deep down it was true. Hmm. Now, I'm only saying that because maybe you're here and you think Christians are drongos. And I want you to know, game's up, fella. We know what's going on on the inside. We know that maybe God has been chasing you. Like Francis Thompson wrote when he trained to be a medical doctor, graduated as a medical doctor in the 1800s and took his first snuff of opium and became addicted and became an opium addict. Left his mansion, his home, his wealth, went down to the streets of London and was just a, an opium addict living in rags was taken in by a prostitute who cared for him when he wasn't well and all the while his parents are praying for him God open his eyes God bring him back and eventually God did God did and he wrote the poem he, he describes being by the banks of the Thames River where the hounds of heaven were unleashed and chased him down. 
And like a rabbit or a fox, the hounds of heaven, these angelic hounds of heaven, found him. And he gave his life to Christ. He died a very young man because of the damage that opium had done. But before he did, he wrote some of the most profound material for what it's like to be someone who's far from God and yet he knows God is near. Well, what happened to Paul when he was killing Christians, when he was persecuting Christians? What happened? You see, the Christians, they took Jesus very, very seriously. Jesus said, um, blah, 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 those who persecute you. What's the blah, blah, blah bit? Pray for those who persecute you. And these early Christians, I reckon, were doing that. They didn't know if they were next. They didn't know if it was going to be their house door kicked in and them dragged out into the streets. And this guy Saul would be orchestrating their death. They didn't know that. So what do they do? You know, not what some of us might pray, which is called imprecatory prayers. That's another sermon. That's where you pray thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening on someone. They would have been praying God open his eyes. I reckon that's what they were praying because the irony is not long after that Paul is on the road to Damascus to kill these Christians and as Christians are praying, I'm conjecturing, praying God open his eyes, he sees a bright light and he is blinded. And for the first time now that he's blinded, he can see because he sees Christ. He sees. Let's have a look at this. As Christians were praying for Saul, he encountered the very Christ he was denying. It says in Acts chapter 9 verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I've mentioned that it was the church Saul was persecuting and Jesus says, yeah, that is me. That's me. So the next time you think, ah, oh, should I go to church? You're actually debating, should I spend time with Jesus together with the rest of Jesus' body together? The answer is yes, you should. So verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wowzers, man. <laughs> Wowzers. He was resistant, he was hard, he was cantankerous, he was angry, he was literally murderous. Oh man, can you imagine us nominating an elder in our church? We were talking about elders yesterday with uh, Philip in the workshop. And Can you imagine nominating? Here's a guy, uh, we're going to nominate him as an elder. Just uh, the other week he dragged out 12 Christians and killed them. He's uh, got an anger problem, pretty serious anger problem. He's extremely impatient. Uh, many people think he hasn't got that great a view of women. Uh, so we're going to nominate him as an elder. All in favour? Now the fact that you're going, oh, you've got to be joking. That's what happened more or less in Jerusalem. One week he was a murderous, persecuting, martyring, hardcore Pharisee. The next week... He was claiming he was now a converted Christian. Hmm. Wow. All that to say, no matter how far you think you are from God, God can change you. 
But here's the thing that I guess we need to understand. That murderous, persecuting, uh, hardcore, anger-ridden, impatient, zealous, hardcore, maybe, maybe, maybe slightly misogynistic man. When he gave his life to Christ, when he said, yes, Lord, it didn't all just change straight away. There was still some transacting to happen here. And this is why whenever you give your life to Christ, just to let you know, it's the beginning of the journey. It's not the end. So we read Paul describing, though, reflecting on what happened on that road to Damascus. He tells the Corinthians because he can. He tells the Corinthians because this is, this is his experience as well. And this is a beautiful thing. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I know that we all think that's an event that happened. You know, we heard Norm say 1972. I can guarantee you, I've known Norm for over 20 years. I, can t- I, I know Norm is not the same Norm he was 20 years ago. In other words, and that's not 1972. 1972 was 150 years ago. But <laughs> even over the last 20 years, Norm's changed. And if you think, oh, well, it hasn't changed enough, then just be patient because you probably haven't changed enough either. And if you think, well, Andrew, you've changed too, but gosh, I wish you'd hurry up and change more. Well, be patient with me too, please, because we're all on a journey. But here's Paul's story. The moment I gave my life to Christ, I became brand new. I became a brand new person. And if you're here today struggling with something you've done in your past, your past is dogging you, and you struggle to sleep and you try to medicate it, you try to take pills, you try to find something in a bottle, in a needle, in a bed, in a relationship, and it's just not working, give your life to Christ. What on earth have you got to lose? Give your life to Christ. Surrendered to Christ. And this is what Paul says. He became a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. But I want you to see that even though that happened, and even though he could say to the Galatians, and this is, I'm going to draw a couple of things out of what he said to the Galatians, because I think this is beautiful. He said this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in or of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul could say, the moment I became a Christian, it wasn't just a religious idea. It wasn't that I didn't believe in Santa Claus, now I do. It's not like that. It's something actually happens. Something happens that the very thing that was embedded in the core of his soul was not only taken those things taken out, he was given a new soul. Like it's totally new. And this is what I think we need to understand. That I mentioned that Paul probably, and I'm curious that Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament for Pete's sake or for Paul's sake. Paul wrote so much and yet we have no recollection, no reflection on his father. I find that really odd because we know so much about the other disciples. We know, we know some of their details. We're in the Gospels, we're taken into Peter's home and we see his mother-in-law is in the home and she's sick. And, and so we get these little family details. And here's Paul with the opportunity to write so much and not one reference, not one mention of his father. And I look at that and go, well, isn't that interesting? Because here's an angry young man 
He's an angry young man. He was born about 5 AD. So he would have been some 5 uh, to 9, minimum 5, uh, up to 10 years younger than Christ. So when he comes into the group of apostles uh, after this, he's a young man. But we know he's an angry young man. He's really angry. He's incredibly impatient. He's got all of these issues that he's trying to deal with. And I wonder if these stem back to his distant relationship with his father. Because for those men who I've met who've had this anger problem, that at the core of it, it's that they've longed for and not had a deep, affectionate, affirming, that's the key word, connection with their father. And daughters get it as well. But here's Paul, and, and I think it looks like it. So I think what happened when Paul gave his life to Christ, just before that, he was actually reflecting how he saw fathers. Angry, spiteful, impatient, legalistic. And then he gives his life to Christ and the transformation begins. He realises he's got it wrong and he's got it horribly wrong. The God who created heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is none of those things. And he begins to understand who God really is. And it's a beautiful thing that Paul says in Romans 8 15 we'll see but this is how he begins to talk about God in the epistles it's just beautiful we don't pick it up in English so readily because we have this it sounds like he's talking about a rock band (laughs) money 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 anyway it's Abba which is daddy daddy it's the expression of a little child in an affectionate relationship with a dad who loves them. Abba, father, Abba, daddy, father, daddy. I get a wonderful picture of that word in my mind of a child, three, four, just nestled in his father. I have a 12-year-old daughter going on 22 now and, and she will at times come and sit on my lap and just bury her neck into my one chin and <laughs> dad you've got so many chins and she'll do that and, and she's safe there and I'm real and it does me good when she does that but the assurance that it gives her is is priceless and now Paul's describing his relationship with God like that one in which he can bury his head into the neck of his daddy and know him as daddy. He says in Romans 8, 15, 4, you did not receive... And by the way, Romans 8 is Paul's conversion story. Romans 7 was the battle he had as a Jew. Romans 8 describes, this is what happened when I became a Christian. And he says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So this is how he describes Judaism. And he goes on, he says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry... Abba, Father. Oh man, you can't see this hard, this is not a hard, angry man, impatient, misogynistic, writing this. This is a man who's been utterly transformed, who now knows God as Daddy. And how did Christ transform this man? Well, 
you know, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you realise, see, Jesus described, and it, was, it must have been a shock to his hearers, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, we, we, we find Jesus saying this, in, in the moment of, of his greatest pressure, where it says in uh, Hebrews, that when he was praying this prayer that I'm about to recite to you, he was sweating drops of blood. That's pressure. And in that moment of intense pressure, Jesus chooses to address his father as Abba. If it's possible, remove this cup from me. But if not, your will be done. But he addresses him as Abba. And as Paul got to know this Jesus, he got to know the father of this Jesus. And so can you. We see also in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6 where Paul says, And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we now cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. So how did Christ transform Saul into the Apostle Paul? Because this was the utter transformation of this man. I want you to think that when, when Saul was transformed, Saul was his Hebrew name. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This was a big deal to him. Names are big deals. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Paul Part 3 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, Saul's conversion began a transformation that would continue for his lifetime. It began with his surrender and continued as he learned more about God and his word and was prepared to serve others. More from Dr. Corbett next week in the final in the series on Paul. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.